Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us slash sermons. We'd love to have you join us for a worship service this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road in Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the service, as we switch here, switch gears to John chapter 14, the first line really kind of sets the tone for everything we're going to look at today. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And that's a biblical way of saying you look a little anxious. You look a little worried. And it's understanding that the disciples would be this way. If you really take into consideration everything that transpired in the previous chapter, you can imagine that their hearts would be a wee bit troubled. Jesus has already informed them that Judas is going to betray them. Now, whether or not they put together that it was going to be Judas, they were aware that somebody was going to stab Jesus in the back and in not too much time. And, of course, that would also kind of transfer onto them. They were going to get stabbed in the back. One of the the 12 of them who had been with them for three years through everything that had gone on was about to betray them. If that wasn't bad enough, at the very end of chapter 13, we found out that Peter, the rock, was going to betray. Or was, sorry, was not going to betray, but was going to uh, deny Jesus three times. Not once, not twice, but three times in the course of the next few hours. In addition to those two things, Jesus had informed his disciples that he was about to go someplace that they couldn't go. Go somewhere. He didn't really get into the deep details just yet of exactly that, hey, I'm going somewhere that you can't come. And we don't see it as as explicit in John chapter 13, but in some of the the other gospels, we see that Jesus right up through this point is instructing them that he's going to get arrested. He just flat out tells them, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. That's a lot to take in. That's a lot to hear. And so you can imagine as Jesus is looking at them, kind of telling them all this, that sometimes you can see it on people's faces. They're a little worried. They're a little concerned. There's a little anxiousness in in their faces. And really, we're going to talk about anxiousness and worry and concern. And it's interesting because when I first started to prepare this sermon at the beginning of the week, at this point, when I kind of try and take the biblical thing into modern times, you know, to, to make it apply to us here, I was going to use statistics about, you know, how many people are on anti-anxiety drugs and the, the, the rise in all of that over the past 20 years and suicide rates and all of those things. And then I just watched the news this week. And I figured there's probably a number of people that are getting a little anxious. They're getting a little concerned. My wife and I, our family has a cruise schedule. Do you think about being concerned? You know. But people see this disease that came out of China that seems to be spreading across the world. There's people that are scared. They're concerned. What happens when it comes here? What happens when it it, it appears in our area of the world? And if it's not just the health, it's also if you have a retirement account, you're probably going, whoa, that's disappearing at a rapid rate. And how in the course of just a very short period of time, something can happen That can cause anxiousness and worry and concern. And the truth of the matter is this is just part of life, isn't it? If it's not one of the things I've talked about, there's some personal thing or something going on in a lot of our lives right now that's just weighing us down. 
We think about it. You know, sometimes there's that false bravado of Christianity that we say, oh, nothing bothers me. Well, if that was the case, there wouldn't be as many verses as there are in the Bible about worry and anxiousness and concern. I read around at the very beginning of the service. And so we see Jesus here say to his disciples, hey, he's not saying there's not a reason for you to be concerned. There's not a reason for you to have anxious hearts. Yes, there is. I've told you a bunch of stuff that's, that's pretty heavy. But I give you a command, don't let it weigh you down. That's great, but how? How do we do that? Well, the rest of what we're going to look at this morning is really Jesus then instructing them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Let me tell you why. Let me help you out with that. And in just the way he does here with his disciples, and really it it's, goes beyond what we're going to look at this morning, but primarily what we see here, it, it speaks to us. Hopefully it speaks to you. As you look at this, I, I would imagine looking out there, this many folks, that there's some of you that have a, a troubled heart this morning. So how do we deal with it? Well, Jesus, he's going to give a foundation, answer two concerns, and then give us some marching orders. And so in the honor of God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as I read John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that speaks so perfectly to us in our world today. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning that have troubled hearts, Lord, that they would hear you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Right off the get-go, when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, he then provides, okay, how do we do that? Well, let me give you the foundation. Let me give you the basis. And he really gives us two ideas here. One's faith. And one's a future hope. And we see faith right off the bat. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now he says, believe in God. Believe also in me. That can be either what's called an indicative. He just makes a statement or an imperative. It's a command. Or one or each could be either thing. But the basic idea here he's saying is at the very get-go, when your heart is troubled, when you are facing anxiousness, when you are worried and concerned, faith is where you start. Faith in God is the absolute essential truth because here he's really comparing faith and feelings. I mean, when your heart is troubled, you're focused on your feelings, aren't you? You're worried. 
Something's happening, something's going on, you're looking to the future, and it's caused concern. And what Jesus is saying here, you got to get past the feelings and focus on the face, focus on the fundamentals. When I was in high school, I played basketball. Everybody that looks at me says, of course. He looks like a dominating basketball player. I mean, he's 5'8", maybe, you know, and I actually weigh about 25 pounds more than I did in high school. I was not a big guy, but I wasn't half bad at basketball because I was quick. Okay, that was my one thing I had going for me. But I would, you know, occasionally go and get fouled and have to shoot a free throw. And for those of you who aren't familiar with basketball, a free throw means you get a free shot. You know, it's, they were very, very, you know, on the, the name there. And you'd stand at the foul line. There's a piece of tape up here. You can't see that. But there'd be a foul line. You dribble the ball and you get to shoot. And they're not allowed to play defense. But when you do this, often the crowd, I went to a Christian school, but even in a Christian school, the crowd would try to distract you. They would do all sorts of things. Some of the other teams had cheers that they would do specifically to try and take your attention off shooting the basket. And this one particular school, I, when I would dribble to shoot the free throw, they would count. So it would be one, two, you know. And smart guy that I was, one time I decided to fake them out. You know, I was dribbling and I just, and it didn't, I didn't actually dribble it. And they counted and I looked and smiled and, you know, kind of did my thing. To which the coach, my coach, was mad at me. He said, what are you doing? You know, and I, was, huh? I looked the other way, and I proceeded to, guess what? Missed the shot. And the whole idea behind it, what he, what he wanted to instill, instill in all of us is, listen, when you're shooting the free throw, they're going to make noises. They're going to do things. Sometimes they're behind the basket trying to draw your attention. You stay focused on the fundamentals. Bend your knees. Follow through. Look at the hoop. Don't worry about everything that's going on. Remember what you know to be true. And as we go through this world, there are going to be concerns. Right now, as Jesus talks to his disciples, one's going to deny him. One's going to betray him. He's going somewhere they can't come. They're getting worried. They're immediately focused on all of that. And he says, believe in God. Believe in me. Don't stop and forget everything you've known for the past three years. And one of the foundations we have to remember, you're going to get wrapped up in your emotions when things are worrying you. When your heart is anxious and at the basis, you go back to faith. That's why we do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis because it takes us back to the, the essential. So he starts with faith and then he talks about a future hope. The next verses that are quite famous, right? My father's house are many rooms. I go and prepare a place. I'm going to come and get you. You know where I'm going. He gives that description. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I read this, I kind of had a mental picture most of my life. Maybe it goes back to when I was a little kid. Maybe it's from the song, I have a mansion over hilltop, that kind of thing. Because in the King James Version, it talks about a mansion. And so I had this mental picture that Jesus, you know, when he says, I go to prepare a place that after he ascended into heaven, he kind of went up there to be like a building contractor. Okay, maybe this never, but he's up there building me a nice mansion. You know, I don't know, a nice 4,500 square foot, three car garage up there working on it for me. He's preparing a place. And and I just kind of had this idea that maybe that's why it's been so long. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's working on my house. And he's, you know, it's like the guy's working on 67, 167. It takes a while to get it done. And every day, some more people become Christians, and he's like, I'm almost finished. There's like 2,000 more today. Okay, hold on. And I don't know, maybe I had that idea, but that's not at all what he's talking about here. First of all, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. 
God, Jesus, the, he created the universe in six days by simply speaking. Okay, he doesn't need 2,000 years to build a house. I mean, he, he could, it could be done the moment, any moment. I mean, it's, it's there, it's prepared. It's not that. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's talking about the cross that's just about to come up. To prepare the place, the way we are prepared to go see God the Father is through what he does on the cross by dying and rising from the dead, by taking our sins from us. But then he says this, in my Father's house are many rooms. The word rooms is translated a lot of different ways. But what's interesting about this, and I'm going to give you a little, little Bible slash Greek lesson this morning. That word rooms appears only two times in the entire Bible. It appears here and in this very same chapter. The rest of the Bible, you will not see this word. Now, some of you are interested. You're going, where, which other verse is it? I'm going to tell you. It's verse 23. Verse 23 says this. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There it's translated home. Back there in, in the, the verse I read at the very beginning, it's translated uh, 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 room. But it's the idea, that it doesn't, it's, it's actually the word manse, which is, where it's, why it's translated mansion in some places, but it's not really a mansion like we think of a really big giant house. It's a place where you stay. It's a place where you are and you decide to take up residence. And it's interesting that in this passage of Scripture, chapter 14, we see it in two different places. And one is about Jesus coming to take us someplace to be with him. And then at the end of the chapter, it's about God the Father and Jesus coming to be with us. And it's talking about the Father's house, where we are. Have you ever heard the phrase, home is where the heart is? What does that mean? means home is where? Is it a particular physical place? Is it a building? Is it a whatever? No, home is where the people that you love are. It's where you feel at home. It's this idea of home is a particular state of mind, state of being. And what John is saying here at the beginning of this 14 or what Jesus is saying, and he says there at the end, he's saying, listen, I'm going to prepare a place. What you need to remember is you're going to be with me. When you are concerned, when you are worried, when the world is weighing you down, you have this future hope, you will be with me. And it says at the end of this particular chapter, and as it stands right now, God the Father and I are with you. We're with you. Doesn't that change the perspective of of, of worry and concern when we know God is with us? He's prepared a place for us to go, be, we're going to be with him for all eternity. Just imagine if you were living, you know, back, I remember when I was young and had an apartment and, and, and the bills would come due at the end of the month and I always was hoping there'd be a little bit more to pay the bills than, than what the bills were. And you have all of these, you know, you got to pay the rent, you got to pay for food, you got to pay the phone bill, you got to do all this stuff and it, it just worries and concerns you. And just imagine though, if you had a really, really rich uncle, a multimillionaire uncle who says, listen, I'm going to come and stay with you in a couple of months and when I come, I'll take care of all your bills. Now, in the meantime, while you still have you still have all your bills, right? They're still all there. Those are, are there. But your mindset is going, but I don't have to worry about them as much because my uncle's coming. And it's not. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, I'm not taking away the fact that Judas is going to betray me. I'm not taking away the fact that Peter's going to deny. I'm not taking away the fact that I'm going someplace you can't come. Those things are real. But aren't they a little different when you know that you have me and one day we'll be together forever? And as we face the anxieties and the worries and the concerns that all of us have, we have them. Let's not 
pretend they're not there. They're real. But when we understand the eternal perspective that Jesus is telling his disciples here, it, it's, it's different, isn't it? Now, at the very end of this, in, in verse 4, he says, you know the way to where I am going. Now, that actually could be an interrogative. It could be, do you know the way to where I'm going? But whatever it is, it sparks a question from Thomas, and then a little bit later on, another question from Philip. So we move on to the two concerns for a troubled heart. In other words, Jesus' foundation, it's helpful, but the disciples still have some, some thoughts on this. And so Thomas asks the question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas, we always call him Doubting Thomas, which is unfortunate for poor Thomas. For all eternity, he's known as Doubting Thomas. If you remember the other time he spoke in this book, I called him Practical Thomas because he's, I think he's that. Something happens and he just has a very practical question. Jesus has just said all this thing about preparing a place and you know where I'm going and all that. And Thomas goes, I don't know where you're going. How in the world do we know how to get there? And what he's saying is, listen, we still have uncertainty, Jesus. We still, you've, you've said a lot of stuff, but we really don't quite grasp where we're going. And if I don't really know where I'm going, how in the world do I know how to get there? It's a good question. So Jesus answers, and he answers with probably, I would say, the second most famous verse in this whole book, doesn't it? not it? John 3.16 is probably a little more well-known, but John 14.6 is really close. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You've probably quoted that. Some of you, that might be one of your your theme verses of life or whatever, but what does it mean? Does this clear it up for Thomas? What does it mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Well, I think what Jesus is getting at is is Thomas's question is really a two-part question. I don't know where I'm going, so how do I know how to get there? So Jesus is kind of answering, well, at the end, you know, you're going to the Father. That's the direction. But kind of explaining how to get there and why it's so important. And he uses three words, way, truth, and life. Let me give you an illustration to kind of help clear this up, what he means. Imagine I went to somebody who's not from around here, didn't grow up in, in the Little Rock area. And I said, all right, this morning, you need to go to Jacksonville. And they think I mean Florida. I mean, they really don't know what I'm talking about. And I said, they said, well, how do I get there? And so I could give them directions. I could say, you drive out here, you get on this road right out in front of the church, make a right, you go down to the next traffic light, you go under the overpass, get on this interstate type road, and it'll get you up towards Jacksonville. I could give them directions. I could give them the steps they need to take. Or I could say, get in the car. I'll drive you there. Now, the difference between those two things is, one, I'm giving you a list of things that you need to do. The other is, listen, come with me, be with me, and I will show you what you need to do. In every other religious belief system out there, the way to God is the first thing. Let me give you a list of rules that you got to follow, a list of regulations that need to be placed in there. Do these things and you get to God. With Christianity, Jesus says, I am the way. You want to know how to get there, you come to me. I will give you rest. I will give you the directions. I will take you to God the Father. I will do what needs to be done for you so you have a way to the Father. But not only that, he's the truth. Why should we believe? He's the truth. He's absolutely 100% always right. This week was Super Tuesday. I don't know what's super, but it was big. You know, it was the election. We actually have the election People can come here and vote. Some people are, are, are whatever it's called, to come here to vote. So we had some people doing their taxes, some people getting were voting. 
Mr. Phil did a great job of making sure they got to the right spot because, you know, people got a little confused, but it was Super Tuesday. And some of you now are happy or sad or whatever, and I don't really need to know. But we've learned something about politicians, right? Politicians will promise you anything and everything when they're running for office. Doesn't matter they're Republican, Democrat, or whatever. You stub your toe, they got a plan to how to, you know, I'll get you fixed for free and all that kind of, it's whatever. And we've learned over the years when they make all these promises about life to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, half of what they tell us they're going to do, probably not going to happen. And it's not just politicians, it's virtually everyone in life. I mean, right now, let's talk about the coronavirus. What do you believe about what's going to be in six months? Depends on who you ask. Everybody's got a different idea, a different thought. This is what's going to happen. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. Everything Jesus ever said was right. It was something that you could take to the bank. It was something that you could absolutely trust. Everything he did was the correct thing to do. Every way he showed us to go was the correct way to go. When I gave that first illustration about telling somebody how to get to Jacksonville, anybody can tell you what to do. Jesus is basically saying, listen, get in the car with me. I promise you I'm going to take you exactly where you need to go. And he's looking at these disciples who are scared out of their minds. They're concerned. He says, listen, I'm the way. I'm taking you where you need to go, and you can trust me. And then finally he says, I'm the life. What does it mean that he's the life? He's the embodiment of, of, of purpose and meaning. This book is full of Jesus being referred to as life. He tells us we can have life and life more abundantly. Jesus is the light of the world, the life. So that we can have eternal life. We see this over and over and over. When we think about life, we think about purpose and meaning. It's, if you go back to the car illustration, if I say go to Jacksonville, the first question is, why am I going to Jacksonville? Maybe it's to go to the Air Force Base. I don't know. But there's a reason you got to go there. Jesus is saying, listen, you, you guys are concerned. You're worried about this world. I'm the way. I'm the path to the Father. I am the truth. You can believe me. And I'm the life. I'm the purpose. I'm taking you to the Father. That's why he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to God except through me. And so there is this, this, this first complete and total uncertainty that Thomas seems to have. Jesus answers it, listen, you're uncertain, your word, come to me, listen to me. Which then prompts Philip's question. Lord, show us the Father, it's enough for us. Show us the Father, And it's not just that. It's what he says after that. That's enough. Philip is in essence saying, listen, in a time of concern and worry, Jesus, if you could just do this one more thing, then then all my worries will go away. I'll never doubt you again, but I just need one more thing. And if we are honest with ourselves, we've probably done something similar, haven't we? God, if you just get me through this, this predicament I got myself in again, I promise you, I'll never doubt you. I'll never not believe you again. And then you get through it, and the next week, well, this other thing came up. I'm not sure again. Philip, when he says, I just want to see you, it goes all the way back to Exodus 33 when Moses says, just show me your glory. We just want a glimpse of it. If I could just have this, I'll be good. We'd like to think that there's something out there, something else that can happen in our lives, some faith thing that we need to have happen. And once that happens, all my doubts, worries, and concerns will go away. And the truth is, it's not going to be. Because look at what Jesus, how Jesus responds to Philip. First, it almost seems like he's, you know, just a little hurt by this. Have I been with you so long, you still don't know me? After three years, Philip, you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
And then he uses the two, the two basic authorities. The words that I speak are the words that the Father would speak. The works that I've done, the Father working through me. In other words, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is in essence saying this, I am sufficient for your faith. I want to say that again. Jesus is saying, I am sufficient for your faith. You don't need something else. There is not something else that is going to happen or take place in your life where you go, oh, if Jesus isn't enough, then nothing else is either. And for many of us, whatever it is your worry or your concern or whatever it is that is just weighing you down over the past week or month or whatever length of time it is, the idea that you need something more than the promises and the foundation of Jesus Christ to, to solve that or to work it out, it's not going to help you. This is something that, you know, even I wrestle with this sometimes. Is Jesus, he's, he's sufficient, but why do I doubt so much? Why do I let the worries build up so much? And I have to come back to this simple truth because I'm a lot like Thomas. I'm not any deeper than Philip. I have worries and concerns, and when I take my eyes off the, the, the goal, it's easy to get distracted into the worries of this world. So my encouragement at this particular point is Jesus is sufficient for your faith. But then we move to the final three verses of this section, which this is Jesus provides the marching order, so to speak, for handling a troubled heart. Beginning in verse 12, he kind of gives them some commands or gives them some startling promises, let's face it. And one of the things I think we see here in 12, verses 12, 13, and 14 is that dealing with a troubled heart is not merely a passive existence. It's not merely just sitting back and going, okay, let me look at all the good things that God has given me. I see the bad things out there, but I'm just going to concentrate on the, the material blessings, so to speak, that God has provided no, there's an offensive component. There's something that God gives us to do so that we don't get consumed by all of the things that we might lose. Sometimes when you watch football games, when the football team that you're rooting for gets ahead, they get a lead. They go into, in the fourth quarter, something what's called a prevent defense. Now, those of you who aren't sports people, I'll explain what that means for the rest of you. You know you hate that. When your team goes to a prevent, they change the way they play defense so that the offense is there, they're going, that's going against them. They let them go down the field, but they just don't want them to score quick. They get focused on the points that they already have, and they just don't want the other team. They think the clock will run out before the other team can catch up. Half the time, it never works. The other team catches up anyway because they change the way they play. And you get frustrated. You throw things at the TV. Not that I would ever do that or encourage you to do that, but you can get mad. Because they get focused on what they might lose instead of what they can go get. And spiritually, one of the things that we have to absolutely, positively be careful of in our Western Christian culture is that we don't get focused on just keeping what we have instead of listening to what God tells us to go do. What's interesting about anxiety and worry and concern is that in many ways, Western, Ameri Western world, the United States of America, our culture, should be the least anxious, concerned, worried culture in the history of the world. We have almost everything that we could possibly need. We're the first group of people, culture in the history of the world, where our poorest of the poor people have more 
food. They're, they're overweight because they have so much food. Everybody can find a place to live for the most part if you really want one. If you're sick, you can go to any emergency room in this country and you can get treated. Now, I know people say, well, but we have it in ways that if you go back just 100 years ago, they would be blown away. I'm always taken aback, like even in this, this room. You know, one of the big things pastors have to deal with? The temperature in the worship center. People fan themselves while other people are doing this. Do you know that for the most part, the temperature in this room when you're here doesn't vary more than two or three degrees? Think about that. We get worked up sometimes because the temperature is one or two degrees different than what we'd like. You go back 100 years ago, I'm from Pennsylvania. They go to church, they just hope they didn't freeze to death. Can we at least just survive before we freeze to death? But we could get consumed by the fact that, you know, the temperature's off by a degree. We get mad at somebody who's using a turn signal. We get upset, frustrated about all sorts of things, things that concern us, weigh us down. We live in a, con- a, a culture that has so much. And one of the dangers of that is we get focused on all the things that we have, the money that we have, the house that we have, the car that we have, the comfort that we have, the clothes that we have, all of the ways that God's blessed us, that all we do is worry about what happens if it goes away. What happens if I lose my health? What happens if I lose all of the things that I've worked my life for? And when we focus on all of the things that we might lose, we forget that we were giving marcher's orders of things to go do. That Jesus said, listen, you, you follow after me and I'll take care of the things that you need. And so in this passage here as he ends, before, as he's telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. He reminds them, you have some things you're going to go do. The first thing he does is tell us about this promise. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do. This is one of those verses probably of of all of the things that we read in the Bible about Jesus that blows us away. We'll do greater works than you? If somebody believes in Jesus, you can do greater works than he does? What does that mean? Well, it can't mean in, in overall power. I mean, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He calmed the seas. He fed thousands of people with just a couple pieces of whatever. I mean, by and large, not everybody's out there doing that. No, when he says, you will do greater works than these, he means to the extent. Because remember who he's talking to. He's talking, first of all, to the the disciples, the 11 guys. Judas is left. He's talking to the 11. He says, listen, as Jesus, he came to the earth. He spoke in Palestine, primarily to Jews, and that's that's the extent of his, his ministry and how far the gospel spread. What happened to that with these 11 guys after Jesus ascended into heaven? The gospel went all over the world. By the time the last one of these guys listening to Jesus died, that would be the writer of this gospel, John, millions were followers of Christ. That didn't happen while Jesus was here, but it happened after he ascended into heaven when he sent the Holy Spirit. And so in keeping with that, when he's saying, listen, you have marching orders, you're going to do great things. Let me give you something else, another promise. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These three verses present promises to us that it's sometimes I think we just go, that can't be true. We're going to do greater things than Jesus did. He'll do whatever we ask in his name. We have to remember that one part of there that says that the Father may be glorified. 
He's talking about the spread of the gospel. He's talking about what really is genuinely important. He's not saying ask anything like, you know, you want a new pair of shoes and there you go, boom. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the context of the spread of the gospel, whatever you need. I used to work in a hotel. I've told you this. I used to have a job at a hotel. And when I worked there, the boss, my boss, gave me some, you know, marching orders of try and sell rooms, fill the place up, do whatever. And for the most part, if I needed something to do that, I'd ask him and he'd say, sure. Got to replace the carpet, sure. Got to repair an air conditioner, sure. Whatever we needed, it's there. I mean, and there were times where I'd say to him, hey, I need some, you know, this type of thing for the hotel. And he'd be like, no, that's, that's, you don't need that. And sometimes as we do the, the, what glorifies the Father, we ask him anything that we need, God will supply it. It's there. It's available. Now, sometimes we don't get it because he says, you don't need that. That's not necessary for what I've called you to do. But he's letting his disciples know, listen, you guys are concerned, you're worried, I can see it on your faces, but I'm preparing a place for you. I'll be with you, you'll be with me in all eternity. Don't, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and finally, listen, the best way to deal with worrying about what you might lose is forget what you have and go after what you need. Go after what I've commanded you to go after. And I look around for so many of us, so many people sitting in churches across America, they're so consumed with the little worldly creature comforts that they have, they forget the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. It may cost you your money. It may cost you your fortune. It may cost you your friends. You may get persecuted. Who cares about that stuff that you lose? Go for the eternal thing that's important. And you won't worry about the things you might lose. What's the song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. I'm sure there are many of you that are concerned about a lot of things right now. One of the things that we have to be absolutely careful of, we don't get so caught up in it that we forget what Jesus has promised us. I'm going to ask you to stand. The musicians are going to come down. We are going to sing a final song this morning. And as they make their way down, I want you to just bow your heads. Close your eyes and bow your heads. I don't, I've been here for a while. I've never done this before. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you have a particular worry, a concern that is weighing you down, would you just slip your hand up for just a moment? They're going up all over the place. You can put them down. I didn't do that so I can sit there and say, I'm absolutely going to pray for I, I I don't, there's too many hands for me to keep track of. But it just reminds me and lets me know, and I want all of you to hear this. Everyone in this room has concerns. They are real. Jesus didn't say you'd go through this world and not have them. But he gave us a way to handle them. And so this morning, I would say, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to him. Look to his great promise. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Cornerstone Bible Fellowship. Please join us for our full worship service this coming Sunday at 10 a.m. Also, you may listen to any past sermon by going to cbf.us slash sermons and clicking on the link to past sermons. Thank you.